Hi, this is Jesse Silver, and you're listening to The Optical. Welcome to episode 17 of the Optical Podcast, where we're revisiting the history of VFX films and movie technology through the lens of Cinefx Magazine. And thanks to Cinefx for providing us access to these out-of-print back issues. Stay tuned for your chance to win a one-year print subscription to Cinefx Magazine later in the show. Real quick before we get started, if you happen to be listening to this the moment I released it, I will be appearing at Emerald City Comic Con in Seattle on Friday, March 27th at 4.30 p.m. in the Sarcastic Voyage panel at the con in Hall D. If you're in town, say hi. This episode, we're following up on Something Wicked This Way Comes with an interview with matte painter Jesse Silver. And sadly, Jesse debunks my speculation about any CGI actually making it into the final cut of Something Wicked. But he's got some other great early CG stories, so don't worry too much. If you want to know more about the things we talked about, check out the show notes on our website at opticalpodcast.com with cool links and additional information for this and every other episode of the show. You can subscribe to the show free on iTunes, or if you'd like to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or SoundCloud at username Optical Podcast, we would love that too. If you have any questions or want to tell us what you think of the show, email us at feedback at opticalpodcast.com or use the feedback form on our website. Got a VFX question? Maybe we'll answer it on the show. But now, here with me this week is Jesse Silver, who is a renowned matte artist and uh, been VFX supervisor and, and artist in other capacities on several films. How are you doing, Jesse? I'm doing great. How are you? <laughs> Excellent. And thank so, you for inviting me uh, to be on, on your show. I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I love to hear stories of kind of, you know, this, this era of filmmaking and... Uh, oh, Way back when, <laughs> no. back, in, back in the day when when we we shot on film and used funny little cameras. Yeah, I, I get it. Does that sound condescending? I need to <laughs> no, work on my terminology. No, but it is an interesting period because we we're we're at that point where we're beginning to see things beginning to transition. We're we're still mm-hmm. a decade or so away from where things kind of really started to pick up and roll over. Mm-hmm. But yeah. It's you know uh, it, it was that era where we were starting to look at, at doing digital effects in addition to the kind of opticals and live things that we've been doing. Yeah, and I and I've been kind of surprised as we've been going through this kind of how early things had crept in here and there um, that were you know computer related when I didn't think they were. So it's yeah, it's been a pretty interesting journey through it. But let's let's talk about you for a second. Uh, how how did you kind of get into this this art of uh, matte painting and, and doing other, uh, sure. um, well, I, um, I had gone to UCLA and gotten a degree in painting, sculpture, and graphic arts, mm-hmm. which essentially was, you know, interesting, but useless and maybe almost thoroughly <laughs> unemployable. And, um, and it just sort of happened by, by sheer chance. What, what happened was that I was house sitting, um, during a, a, a summer, of. A home that was uh, uh, owned by a couple of documentary filmmakers, and they were away promoting a film. And at that time, I was doing paintings and um, you know oil paintings in the photorealist style. I really liked photorealism, and I was playing with it. And you know, I was trying to figure out what the hell I wanted to do with myself after uh, college and after working for a while and 
having saved up you know a few bucks so I could maybe have a year off to actually paint and figure out who and what I wanted to be. And when they came back from their their promotional tour, they they looked at what I was doing and they said, "Wow, this stuff's fabulous. Have you ever thought about being a map painter?" And I said, "No, I have no clue what the hell that is." <laughs> And they said, oh, there's this guy, Albert Whitlock, and he does these fabulous paintings and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I looked into it and I thought, shit, that would be great. I could maybe do that and I could work a few months out of the year doing that and do my paintings. And, gee, that sounds, it seems like it would be really fascinating. And so that's what got me started um, pounding on doors and showing my paintings and, you know, basically getting doors slammed in my face, <laughs> being told I'd never amount to anything. And and the, the sort of occur, encouragement that you've generally gotten those days. <laughs> so was Albert Whitlock like an early influence on the way you painted? No, not really. I mean, I looked at what he did. Um, fortunately, somebody did take pity on me, and I did some work um, uh, for um, Film Effects of Hollywood, and which was one of the, the great little studios back then. There weren't a lot of them. Remember, it was a very small business in the late 70s. And so I was doing something on a a version of things to come that was being made. It was a horrible thing that had Jack Palance in it. But um, there were a lot of matte paintings up on the walls, and I was looking at at Albert Whitlock's paintings and, and other paintings by paint, you know by some of the other artists of that era, trying to figure out why they worked. Because when you looked at a matte painting, it didn't look photoreal at all. And if you tried to paint something that looked photoreal, it, it photographed like a painting. It didn't photograph feeling real at all. So there was this funny thing that you had to figure out how to get the right impression. And, and that's the best way to put it, the impression on the board or the glass so that when a person saw it in that first nanosecond, they would believe it. It was less about the details than it was about getting that sense of light and space correct. So I would look at these things and then I would, you know, paint away and and um and I did do uh, a, a couple of fairly terrible paintings for them but they 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 thought they saw something in me and so they encouraged me to keep going um and uh, you know I kept stumbling around until I I actually uh, got a couple more opportunities to do a couple of more paintings and then my 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 real start came with Tron that's really when things actually began for me yeah we we talked to um Harrison Allen John John Van Vliet about that um, but you were the background supervisor on that film? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Harrison had seen my work when I was basically stumbling around. And um, and this, here's here's a little story for you. And he looked at my stuff, and he thought I, I, I had the makings of being really a first-rate matte painter. And he said, you can develop. But he said, I don't have anything for you right now. But when I do, I'll give you a call. So, I, you know, so two years go by. And uh, I'm at that point where I really haven't been able to to get any work. I'm getting pretty discouraged about it. And I'm deciding maybe it's time just to give it up and get a job so I can pay my bills and, you know, save up again and make another start. And I'm literally reaching for the phone to call my old boss in the jewelry business because I worked for a jeweler while I was in college to help pay bills. And and the phone rings and I pick it up and there's a voice at the other end saying that this is um, Walt Disney Studios calling. Would you hold for Harrison Ellenshaw? And my first thought was somebody was, was pranking me. I was going to hang the damn phone up, and I was literally about to slam it down, and I stopped, and I brought it back up, and I said, okay. And it was Harrison. 
And, it, and the film was Tron, and Harrison had remembered me, and he, he hired me to be one of the background painters on the film. And then uh, as it ended up, I, I took over the uh, organization and running of, of the background department on the show and directed all of the background paintings on that show. Is, that, how, what is, the, is there a distinction between what you would call like background art versus a mat for... Sure. Sure. A background painting, I mean, the, today the distinction is much more blurred, but back then a matte painting was a photographically real-looking painting that was uh, part of a live-action show, and it was used to um, extend, uh, it was used either to extend the set or create an environment where uh, a lo- location wasn't possible or there wasn't anything out there that fit the bill for the director, or it was going to be just too expensive to build it. So you do a, a painting that photographed like reality and, um, you, and use that. And it's one of the oldest tricks in the, um, in the lexicon of uh, visual effects tricks. It goes all the way back, I think, to at least 1896, if I remember my, my history correctly. So, so it's been around a long time. In that sense, it sounds like you're saying that it would be actually be like on the set with the actors, or well, in some yeah, in the old days they had to do that because you couldn't really use a duping process to add the painting in post, so you would do it live on location. And I've done some of those, and um, you would do you would set up uh, a big sheet of glass on a frame, um, and on a on a on a platform with the uh, glass painting between. Um, the camera and the set, and you would paint in um, the, the portions that you needed to add to whatever was visible through the glass, and then you would shoot it live, and you would shoot it with the actors acting behind the glass, and hopefully everything would, would line up properly, and, and you'd actually do it in camera composite. So in the old days, they did it that way. And then later on, they came up with a variety of different ways to add the painting in uh, through uh, either an optical printer or through uh, kind of a process of, of matting out uh, and exposing different uh, parts of the frame to add the painting in here and let a live-action piece go in there and blah, 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 mm-hmm. until the whole thing filled frame. Um, and they would do that in post. There were a lot of different ways that, that uh, paintings are added in. But on Tron, obviously, for... For the most part, there was no... They were just backgrounds. Yeah. They didn't have to look real. They were done, we, they were airbrushed. They were done in grayscale. And, and, I, and I basically set up the numbers on the grayscale. I kind of digitized the process. So oh, that, really? Um, well, I had to. I had a situation, we had a situation that uh, there were a couple of problems. Initially, the paintings were painted in color. And because the, the live action had been shot in black and white, you couldn't get the filters on that black and white photography to match the color of the backgrounds. So you, you, you had an issue there. You had another issue that um, a lot of the paintings looked pretty bad. They were, they were, um, uh, they were, they were spray, they were, as I said, they were airbrushed. The airbrush left a pronounced stipple on, on, the, uh, on the board, and the board they were using was cold press at that time, which also has a texture to it. And then they were shooting that under unpolarized light, and they were uh, varnishing those things. So what you got back were a lot of speculars and, and little, you know, pin pinholes in the image, and it was quite a mess. And um, what happened, uh, and why I ended up becoming, you know, the, the head of the department was, um, I overheard a rather, I was I was always being asked to redo somebody else's work, and I didn't know why. So what do you want different? And they'd go, Oh, nothing. Just paint it. Just paint it just like you see it. And I'd say, Okay. 
And then I finally found out why, and it was because my surfaces were smoother than, than some of the other artists. And so they were photographing much cleaner than the other artists. And so something that was not photographing well, they just had me redo it, but nobody had told me why. And late one evening, I was dropping off a painting in, in Harrison's office, and I heard, shall we say, an, a, a heated exchange going on <laughs> in another office across the way. And I was hearing the, the term, those bimbo spray painters are destroying my film, and I want them all fired. And I went, what the bleep? Because <laughs> I didn't know there were any issues here. And the next day I walked in to Harrison's office and I said, Harrison, are there some problems with the background paintings? And, the, and he looked up at me and it was just precious because it was like that, you know, the deer in the headlights look. And he showed me and I went, oh my God, well, I think we could maybe fix this. And so he said, good, it's yours, fix it. And um, <laughs> I've got a million things to do. I've got to get ready for uh for the um, the NATO convention and all this other stuff, and so I said, fine. So, and so what I did is I basically revamped how the backgrounds were actually painted. Uh, I changed out the airbrushes. The Iwata brushes were coming in at that time, and they were very smooth. So we dumped the Pache's and the Thayer and Chandlers and all the other the Badgers and all the other stuff, and we went with the Iwatas. I swapped out the board from uh, cold press to hot press, which is very smooth. Uh, I swapped out the kind of paint we were using, um, and we went with golden. I think it was golden, which uh, was finer ground than the Liquitex product at the time, and um, and generally revamped the whole thing. And then uh, a final thing was that I had a, a problem here. We had lost half of our post period, and we had no extension on it at the other end, and now I was going to have to figure out a way to hand five to eight use of the same area to five to eight different artists at the same time and have them all come back looking alike. And the only way I could figure this one out was to literally call out values. And at that time, oh, wait, we didn't use gold. We, did, we had a Liquitex, right, we used the Liquitex neutral density grays. I stand corrected. We, we, I, I went to Grumbacher for the white. Okay, never mind. So, um, <laughs> okay. So, uh, and what, I, what they did was we had a series of grays. Black was, I think, zero, and white was you know, ten or something like that. And then there were they were there were ten values. So I went and and used those and basically would write a series of numbers over all of the layouts, saying this gradient goes from this value to this value, you know, two point three to three point five. And I was doing the whole thing in my head because I had, after testing out um, the the uh, the the film and the new uh, lenses and the new lights and the new everything else, I had it pretty well buried in my head how uh, these values replied on the uh, ectochrome stock we were using. And so I could literally call out the numbers and everything came back looking alike. And so I could comfortably hand out an environment to eight artists and it would all look exactly alike in continuity. And so that's really how, how it went. So, you know, if anybody else had wanted to direct this, they were welcome to, but nobody could figure out what the hell I was doing. And they said, it looks okay, you just keep doing it. So I basically called all the numbers on, on how I wanted the, the, um, the basic paintings lit on, on all of the electronic world stuff. And then uh, over that, the different scene coordinators would apply um, uh, the vector lines and animating lines that went in over it. And uh, sometimes they added textures texture overlays, and they did other kinds of burn-ins to um, uh, further elaborate on the basic paintings that we did. But the basic paintings were black and white, uh, so they could be tinted and would match the tintings that were being done to the characters. 
and the light levels all worked fine because they'd all been tested out ahead of time. And I just sat there and basically wrote out all the numbers everywhere. So in a sense, I digitized it. And uh, and then I also was drawing uh, layouts uh, on that show. And I was doing, you know, two to three, four layouts sometimes a day while directing all the other stuff. The only thing I ended up not doing on that show was actually painting on it. <laughs> <laughs> I had done I had done painting when we were working in the at, in color before we we went back and revamped all of it. But I was so busy between doing the you know drawing layouts and running the rest of it that I, I really had no time to paint an actual painting for the show, which was very depressing to me. There was just no time. I think the only thing I got to do was uh, a thing with Walter Cronkite when he did Walter Cronkite's Universe. He did a, a bit on Tron, and so I did did design and paint that painting uh, for the Walter Cronkite thing. Ah, oh, very cool. That's a, I've seen the the shot of Walter Cronkite like in a top hat and <laughs> yes, yes. And I, and because I always thought of him as a guru, I put him on top of a Tron mountain. <laughs> very nice. So that's what I did on Tron. And then um, uh, at the time that Tron was being done, uh, um, they were Disney was also making uh, something. Look at this way comes, and we were told that they there were some issues with how the film was. Um, being done and that we would probably be going on. Some of us would be going on to that film after um, we wrapped on Tron. And that's how I ended up going on to uh, something wicked this way comes. Okay. Yeah. We, in the article in Cinefix about something wicked this way comes, it, it sounded like everybody, like the, the entire effects department was working on Tron or parts of Epcot or, you know, yep. a couple other things and it yep. just, just had nobody available for something wicked. They didn't have any of their top people available. Uh, Epcot was going, in fact, I got yanked onto Epcot at one point and, uh, then there was this, you know, rivalry between Epcot and Tron. And I was told you shall not work on Epcot. If somebody comes to you, you better not work on Epcot. And I'm going, I won't, I won't, I promise you I won't. And then our Crookshank shows up and says, we need you to fix something. And nobody says no to Art Crookshank. I don't care <laughs> if you're Harrison Owenshaw. Nobody says no to Art Crookshank. So you go, yes, sir, and you fix it. So I ended up fixing some stuff in, the, I think, the Mexican Pavilion, if I remember correctly, some stuff that was going on. But but, but all that was going on through the mat department. And then uh, Harrison did have me do some retouches and some tweaks on um, one of his paintings. And then I did a couple of paintings on actual matte paintings on Tron for the sequence where the, where the orange gets uh, de-resed when I was doing the test and you man, the orange disappears. So I, they, they had some stills that they shot uh, at uh, Lawrence Livermore lab and it still had all this camera gear and equipment and junk in the background. So I basically painted all that out and made it all look sort of like some science building back, back there and, and add some jazz to it. And then uh, painted an orange that we could, then remove. And so they were, so I basically, that was my big matte painting for that show was, you know, a little touch up on the Lawrence, a little more lab and, and an orange. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So on something wicked, this way comes, how did you get into that? Well, initially we were delayed because I, if I remember correctly, there was a strike at the time. And although the strike wasn't involving my union, I, uh, I don't think I felt like, or any of us felt like crossing a picket line. So we we basically were um, not working on it, and then um, we started talking about what the film needed. Now the, the 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 way it worked was that the film's director, and and you'll have to pardon me, I'm having one of those senior moments where his name just 
just went completely out of my head, and that's very embarrassing, but there it is. Um, had uh, had the right to to for it to be screened before you know anybody could touch it. So they arranged for a screening. They screened it, and then they closed it. And um, and then um, he was invited to to uh, be involved on on the tweaks that we were doing, but he declined. Um, and the, the issues that we had were that uh, the film lacked. Um, uh, really any real exterior to it. And it had been shot on stages. You know, this was shortly after the Twilight Zone disaster, and everybody was being very careful with kids. And so they really hadn't done much in the way of exteriors. They had built a huge exterior set for the, um, for the you know, the downtown gorgeous set, absolutely gorgeous set. And, um, and they filmed the uh, Dark Carnival, Dark's Carnival Parade and all that, but it didn't have a real opening to set the piece at the beginning and the the didn't have a satisfying ending. Uh, they didn't have a real climactic destruction of the carnival. So much of what we were doing was building a beginning and an ending for the show, and um, building a beginning and an ending for the show, and otherwise um, uh, adding touches here and there throughout it uh, in terms of adding some visual effects touches along the way. So the exciting thing for me was I got to work with one of my absolute heroes, Ray Bradbury. And, um, uh, and, and Ray was just delightful. And I get to say Ray because he said, call me Ray. So I get <laughs> to say it was Ray. And, um, um, and the deal was that we were trying to come up with ideas for the opening of the show. And we wanted to set it, come up with ideas that said fall, that, you know, you know and it was rural. And so uh, I started doing uh, inspiration sketches of various kinds and things that, that I thought said fall and said rural. And, and I would do these sketches and I would send them off to, to Ray and he would look at them. And, and he liked some and he had some suggestions and I drew other stuff. And, and so gradually, uh, over a period of time, uh, we came up with the ideas for the opening um, montage and with a voiceover that starts the show. And that didn't exist. Ray wrote that based on, you know, the stuff that I'd sent him. And, um, and so that was kind of cool. I mean, my God, I got to, to collaborate with Ray Bradbury. I mean, <laughs> that's geez, cool. I just about, yeah, it was very cool. I didn't realize he was so in, involved in the, the touch-ups at the end there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. The, the, the other thing about this is I have none of those sketches because when I asked for them back, Ray refused to give them back. <laughs> no. And I said... But I need them. And he said, I'm sorry, but if I give them back, I'll never get them back. And I like them. <laughs> <laughs> so he kept them. <laughs> and uh, I, I seem to recall that we got some Xeroxes. Uh, and we, we used some of those when we went to um, Jeffersonville to shoot the plates that we shot for the um, opening of the film. And then we shot in and around Jeffersonville and... Stowe and, and, and parts of northern Vermont, and I think we, we had a, uh, a sojourn into New Hampshire as well. We spent about, I guess, a week and a half there, seems to me. We spent, maybe it was longer, but that was about it, and, and it was gorgeous. We were there to, to, to photograph the fall colors. It was really about uh, opening up the film and, and bringing nature into it. And so, uh, so I, I, I walked around looking at the locations that, uh, that Disney's uh, liaison with, in Jeffersonville had, had found for us. And I settled on a few that I, I liked um, uh, for plates for the map paintings. And we shot these different map painting plates there. 
Um, and um, and then there were other things. I shot a bunch of elements that we were later uh, uh, used for um, spooky things happening in graveyards. You know, I think when Dark's Carnival uh, is coming in, I believe we had some things where uh, headstones cracked and lights came out of it and stuff like that. So I spent a couple of days going to um, graveyards and photographing uh, headstones. Yeah, interesting. Fun stuff. Is that part of your usual technique is kind of going out and finding this sort of reference material to to base your paintings on? Or? Um, yeah, when I can. Now, you know, since the advent of digital, more and more of us have been kind of pushed into a, uh, a dark room and told, you know, now play nice and stay out of the way. And, and that's really boring. Um, and so it's one of the reasons why I kind of got out of the matte painting field. Uh, I just decided I really wasn't um, interested in, in sitting in a black room, staring at a screen. Uh, I liked doing the whole thing, getting out there, figuring out the shot, uh, planning it, uh, working with the, um, you know, with the production designer and the director and, and whomever else needed to be involved in it, the director of photography, certainly. And, and figuring out how to do it, stage it. And sometimes um, I even directed action on, on these things in order to um, get what we needed. And uh, that was interesting to me. And then you take all that back and now you do the painting. And when you have um, had the uh, ability to assemble the elements, you have, I think, a better chance at delivering a quality product for the production. So uh, can you um, explain, uh, we, we read in the article uh, about I believe you you called them CMYs, where you're doing like these color separation things. How, how does that? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Color separation masters. Okay, sure, sure. Um, Disney, the math department at the time, it primarily used color separation masters to um, composite the uh, film original into the the, the plate. And uh, I'll try and explain that. Well, the 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 primary way it was done, they, they used a rear projection process. So you, we had a we had a projector, uh, and then we had the stand on which the painting went. Paintings were done in glass, and then we had the uh, the compositing camera, which you know, which would record the painting and record the elements and give you the composite. And um, in order to be able to color balance um, the uh, color balance the um, the the different film elements so that they would match up. What we would do is we would take the, the film and, and, and have it duped into um, black and white records, one for each of the uh, each of the negatives. So in place of RGB, you had CMY, and so so that's cyan, magenta, and uh, yellow. And then each of those black and white records, one at a time, would be exposed with the correct uh, Raffin filter, projected up against the backside of the glass. And on the back of the glass, we had a frosted material that acted like a, a projection screen. And we would project it up onto that that material, and and it was focused, so it was it was sharp at the front side of the material, and that was right on the back side of the glass. And then the painting uh, was on the front side of the glass, and and uh, where we needed to mat mat out something, uh, that's where the painting was, and then where we wanted to be able to see the the plate, that was left clear, and so the projection would be visible behind the painting. So we would do a pass where we would project the, the image um, in, in uh, YCMs onto the screen. That would get um, picked up by the um, positing camera. It would expose onto the film. And where the, where the matte painting was, 
that was completely blacked out. There were no lights on it, so it acted as a map. Then uh, once we had exposed um, the plate or plates, if we did multiple plates onto the same basic uh, composition, then what we would do is we'd take off the screen material and we would put duvetine um, on the back of it, uh, which was a shiny black. And then we would turn the painting lights on so the, so the painting was visible. So now you saw the painting against black. And then we re-exposed, and that was the B side of it. And um, if we did it right, what you got was a complete image where the painting and the live-action plate were comped together in the, uh, in the camera. The so the the CMY the color separation masters it, part of that you would you were tr- trying to balance yes. the color of the painting with yes. the color that was in the actual footage. Yeah, the the thing is, um, film never never replies absolutely correctly. You can get two out of three of the main color records to reply fairly accurately, but any way you look at it, it's going to be off in some way. Also, got to remember that. Different emotions were uh, sensitive. They weren't, you, they weren't uh, equally sensitive across the spectrum, so they would have um, weaknesses in some part of the spectrum. And at that time, I think uh, 50, I can't remember the, the number now. I think it's 5247, but I've probably got that wrong. Uh, maybe it's 5347. Anyways, it was, the, it was for the particular emotion type that we were shooting with. And it, had, it, was, it was known to have kind of a weakness when it came to um, picking up uh, certain parts of the spectrum. So what you would do is you would, you would overpaint. Like I think it was weak on reds for some reason. And so if you were going to do uh, fall colors, you had to paint them very sort of overstate them, very pure to get them to read on the film. And as a result, uh, you, were, you were painting in false colors to get something that looked right. At the same time, you were trying to, to increase saturation or response in certain parts of the spectrum by playing with with the, the color balance between the three records so it wasn't it was, so you could you could alter the um, the um, brightness of it you could alter uh, you could you could alter the color balance and and, and and by by giving a little more emphasis to one uh, of the of the color records over the other and then the other thing you could do uh, when you were cooking this stuff um, was you could alter its actual contrast by uh, how you uh, process the black and white and how you, uh, how you affected its gamma. And that would actually um, create a variation in the, in the contrast. So in a sense, we were able to uh, adjust uh, the image in, in several different ways that, that allowed us to fine-tune the balance. And using YCMS was a very good way to do it. You could, you could put in minute amounts of, of, of Variation either through exposure or through adding a little bit of filtration in front and get what we call ring arounds, where we would do a ring around what was supposedly neutral and then pick something that looked pretty close to what we'd like it to look like and then ring around that in a tighter, uh, in a tighter set of adjustments to fine tune it. And then while we were doing that, uh, I was adding splotches of paint on the glass to see what my paint was turning into from the taking camera because that was using a different batch of an emulsion, a film emulsion, and every batch was different in terms of how it responded to, to color. See, it wasn't like, oh, we get this one film and it's always the same way. It's totally different, and it varies depending on, on whether it was uh, early part of the batch run at the lab or later, later part of the batch run at the lab, just, just 
the unexposed negative stock. And then once you started printing that stuff and developing it, all kinds of, of merry hell could take place in terms of the color response. <laughs> so this was a way to find, find some way to, to bring some level of control to the process so that you could balance the, um, the colors of the live action plate to the colors of the painting. And then also, in fact, deal with maybe some odd things going on with the painting. And then inside your little matte painter brain, you needed to be able to look at this painting that looked weird <laughs> and figure out what adjustments you needed to make so that the color would answer back on, on film the way you wanted it to, as opposed to how it looked up on the glass. Wow, so you really had to train your brain to like kind of think the same way the film stock was going to look. So it's, you know, to the naked eye... It doesn't look right. <laughs> and yeah, and it, and it, oh yeah, these map paintings never looked uh, correct. They always had a certain strange um, warp in their in their um, in their contrast levels, and that had to do with I think dealing with the H and D curve on the film. And I won't go into that. Wow. But but the, and and then the other thing that could really screw you is that uh, is, is if in the middle of the the production you ran out of that batch run of that particular negative and you had to order new stock. And in fact, that's what happened. Um, in the middle of shooting something wicked this way comes, uh, we ran out of uh, out of the the batch stock that we started shooting the matte paintings with, and we got some new stuff in. And supposedly Kodak responding to complaints about about the uh, the lack of sensitivity to, I think it was a lack of sensitivity to reds, but it could have been greens. I mean, I just don't remember now. It's been so long, um, but. What happened was that I had been compensating for, for this lack of sensitivity. So now we go and we're, we're about to shoot the final takes on these paintings. I've got this new stock because we've completely run out of the old stock, which is bad news. <laughs> and I load it and I shoot it and all the colors are wrong. Because <laughs> no. they so overcompensated that now the stuff that looked practically gray is screaming with saturation. Uh. And the stuff that was screaming with or looked properly saturated has gone gray. So now I'm going, oh, shit, and I've got to repaint these things. So it's like <laughs> going back and repainting and, and tweaking. And, and, oh, man. You know, yeah, this is, this is the one part of digital that I do not miss. <laughs> but, <laughs> so it wasn't even something that you could fix just with the color separation masters? It was far enough off that you had to repaint some of it? Uh, well, you can remember, the color separation masters only apply to the original live action plate. The painting is just its own self. So while I could maybe make some adjustments on the live action part to to uh, uh, easily enough to balance out some of that, the painting itself would have to be repainted. And so it and be, and this is one of those things where I think Kodak overshot the correction because they came back later on with something that was a little better balanced. But there was this kind of it doesn't do well with this color. Okay, now it doesn't do well with anything other than this color, and now. <laughs> Now, let, what, and then they then they kind of fixed it. Um, <laughs> but at the point that we were doing something wicked this way comes, we were in that point where they were sort of penduluming in terms of of the film's color response. Oh wow! Yeah, so the way it is, <laughs> the part of the fun and the joy and the thrill, <laughs> the the glamour that is Hollywood. Indeed. We'll be back in a moment with more of our interview with Jesse Silver, but now it's time for the Optical Trivia Contest, brought to you by Cinefix. Cinefix 141 hit newsstands last week with massive coverage of the conclusion of Peter Jackson's 20-year journey through Middle-earth with The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies. 
with armies of effects artists at Weta Digital, Weta Workshop, and NZFX. Cinefx 141 also covers Jupiter Ascending, the latest exotic sci-fi fantasy from the Wachowskis, with spectacular cosmic realms realized by visual effects supervisor Dan Glass and nearly a dozen VFX houses, plus coverage of the onset special effects and amazing makeup. Chappie, the latest futuristic action thriller from District 9's Neil Blomkamp, gets coverage of not only the visual effects by Image Engine, All In VFX Studio, and The Embassy, but also Weta Workshop's practical props and effects. And director Angelina Jolie's Unbroken gets coverage of the visual effects that back up this tale of courage and survival. All of this in Cinefx 141 on newsstands now, or order your copy today from cinefx.com. Or download the Cinefx iPad app edition, which has extra photos and VFX breakdown videos. The Cinefx iPad app is available on the App Store, and you can click straight to it from the link in our show notes. If you want a chance to win your own one-year print subscription to Cinefx Magazine, all you have to do is answer this question. Name the author who wrote the original book that was adapted for the film Something Wicked This Way Comes. Send your answer to feedback at opticalpodcast.com or use the feedback form on our website by midnight Pacific time, April 30th, 2015, and you'll be entered to win. One winner will be chosen from the correct entries. Now back to our chat with Jesse Silver. I'm not sure that you were directly involved with this, but I'm, I'm curious if you know anything about the, there was... Uh, apparently a, a digital train sequence that yeah yeah I, I know about it because okay. I I actually drew a storyboard for it. Um, the idea was that and I think I think John North was was guy who was actually most involved in this. But the idea was that they were going to um, actually have the train come into town and then animate into the carnival. So things were going to move, and they were going to animate, and um, there were, you know, some people who were very big on, on, on promoting this, and they thought that they could make this work. And, and John got involved, I think, as, as as trying to animate it, and I got involved sketching some ideas for how things could change into other things, just you know, sketches, roughs. Um, but they were they were intending to do that, and w- what came down to was the technology just wasn't there. Because what they really needed to be able to do was come up with something that um, looked photoreal. And they just didn't have that capability at that point. We were still a a little ways away from being able to um, make things look, um, render out photographically real in any sort of of, um, commercially feasible way. You could could get people who who could... tweak an image or tweak a chrome ball or tweak something else and make it look really cool. But what you had to be able to do is produce thousands of frames of film at a, at a, at a reasonable cost and then a reasonable length of time. And that just wasn't there at that point. So the, so the idea died because it was going to cost a fortune. It was going to take a long time and it was doubtful. Uh, I think there were some tests done but the stuff, you know, it looked graphic, it, like Tron. There's nothing in Tron that looks real. Yeah, it the, looks like a graphic. In the Cinefx article, there were there were actually some like wireframe shots of the train, and they were saying that the 
uh, they were kind of describing the sequence and saying that there would be this this like once the 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 whole uh, circus or whatever kind of coalesced, there was there would be this one pullback shot that would start out as CGI, kind of pull back and become the model, and then come back further and become a matte painting. Um, like all this one seamless thing that seemed like hugely ambitious for the time. And I was just, I, I was, they, I guess the, the Cinefix article was done soon enough that they didn't know that it was dropped or, or whatever happened to it. And I was I kind of going back to the film and looking, I was like, well, is that CGI? I'm not, I kind of wasn't sure if like if any of it made it in or. No, it didn't make it in. It oh. was it was very ambitious. Uh, I think they got as far as anima- sort of you know, animatics in, in wireframe. Because um, I, I seem to recall seeing some some ideas that were being presented, but I think the reality was just that it was going to be um, very um, difficult to do, um, um, and it wasn't what the movie was about. So although it was a cool idea, it wasn't important enough for what it was going to cost, how much time and effort it was going to take, and so you know it 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 didn't make it into the film. It was one of those things that we all kind of felt badly didn't make it into the film because we all were kind of like, yeah, that'd be so cool to be able to do that. But, you know, just the technology simply wasn't, wasn't there. But you, um, you did uh, a couple of years later work on a CGI piece uh, for the owl in Labyrinth, correct? Oh God, yes. But remember that was, that was a whole nother for Bill. Yeah. Bill Coyer. But you, but that was that was a, one of the, the those occasions where they were just beginning to figure out ways to attach uh, texture maps, and you know texture mapping was still pretty new, and uh, those texture maps were one of some of the first ever done, and that was a deal where uh, that was I think Digital Productions if I remember correctly, and um, Bill contacted me about painting the feathers to cover this owl, and. Um, I don't know if you know that they had tried to train an owl to fly back and forth across the screen for um, uh, the credits, because this was for the credits. And so they, try, they tried to train an owl, and um, it turned out to be very unfortunate, particularly for the owl, who got very confused by all the lights that <laughs> evidently flew into one of them and, you know, ended the owl. Oh, no. Uh, then, they, then they tried to build a mechanical owl, and, and they covered this thing with... with Feathers, and I remember that's what they handed me uh, this owl thing to to use because apparently um, when they tried to fly that with the wing flaps, it was so absurd that they actually took the unexposed film out of the camera and exposed it to light so that it could not be seen. And they just said, "No way are we ever <laughs> let anybody see that." Oh man! And so I got handed this thing, and these those are the stories I was told. And um, and so I got this thing from Bill, and he had drawn uh, some templates to represent the different parts of the owl, the, t- the, the pin feathers and, and other important parts of the, the, the owl's feathers. And they had also given me this thing that uh, was basically an exploded view of the owl's head in wireframe. So what I had was I had this, this exploded view, and by that I mean that they had literally taken this, this shape and, and sort of wrapped it out as if it were flat, and so I, I look, was looking at this gigantic-looking wireframe pancake, trying to figure out where the eyes were supposed to be and the beak was supposed to be and all these parts were supposed to be. And I did finally figure it out. And, um, but the issue was that everything had to be painted at, at, at different scale ratios 
so that when they when they shrunk it back down and kind of collapsed it around the head, all the feathers would feel like they were the same size. But in, in this exploded view, the outside feathers had to be painted much larger than the feathers towards the center. Oh, okay. So it was, and, and, and you're trying to figure out, like, if, if the owl's head is this shape, then what direction should the feathers be going in at this point in the wireframe mess? Or that point in the wireframe mess? Anyways, I did do it. Um, and as I wasn't there for it, but I, but I was told by Bill that there was actual applause at, at Digital Productions when they dropped the texture map on top of the head and it actually fit. <laughs> and because nobody had done this. So we had, we had the textured owl. I, uh, we had uh, the owls uncovered with different uh, feather components that, that Bill had uh, designed uh, and which I painted up. And then uh, they attached them. And, and, and this was one of the first times this was ever done. So we were able to fly this owl around. What they didn't have at that point is they didn't have um, displacement mapping or bump mapping, so it, it didn't have um, the kind of texture across the shadows or highlights, you know, that you know, event horizon. Uh, so it, it, it had that billiard ball smoothness. But the, but the important thing was it worked. And, uh, and nobody done this before. At least, again, this is according to what I've been told. These were, these were like a first, and I think that was like just a couple of years after after Tron for Labyrinth. How were you painting that? Were you, were you painting it digitally or were you painting no, it? No, okay. no, 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 no. There weren't any real digital painting tools back then. Um, no, I painted it in, uh, uh, I just used acrylics. And what they did is they, they, they gave me this printout uh, of wireframe. And then I um, basically matte varnished it so that it became um, impervious to moisture. Otherwise it would have been, you know, it would just come apart because it was just a flimsy paper. So I backed it, uh, steeled it, and then painted on it with acrylics uh, and did the head and then, and, then, and then the other stuff. And then they took that and photographed it. And then they digitized the photographs. And that was brought into, um, into that digital world. And then they had figured out a, a way to, to map it onto, coordinate map it onto the, the geometry of the bird. Hmm. Wow. That's yeah, and it was rocket science back then because there was no <laughs> there was no such thing as a GUI. I mean, it was all like command lines. Right. You know, there were all kinds of issues trying to make make uh, digital things work with real things. I'll give you one example from Tron. Um, the Solar Sailor. The Solar Sailor was originally, I think, was a. Um, let me think. I don't. I know. I can't remember whether it was Magi or Triple I now. Again. Fading brain. It's been too long. Um, but the, pro, the, the one of the one of our digital companies uh, built the model, and the problem was that when they tried to composite the actors onto the decks of the Solar Sailor, what they found was that the decks they didn't they didn't work. They didn't fit on the decks. They looked like they were walking a little bit above and then a little bit below, and and this, and that was because the original set pieces on which they they walked were not perfect geometric forms. You know, you know, the, the computer spits out a perfect geometric form. Carpenters, especially after a few beers, <laughs> don't. Okay? So they build this this big shape that's supposed to be the, the solar sailor deck and then they then they've covered it with, with you know a black material and you know and and um and Tron and Yori are walking along this thing and 
I'm looking at it, and we're watching it on the dailies, and we're going, what the hell? And they're just walking up and down, and it doesn't, it doesn't work. So what we ended up doing is, is that I, I ended up making uh, the solar sailor for all those shots where, where they're on the deck. Those are composite. Uh, we, we, we dropped out uh, the deck. We dropped out all the structure. We left just the wings. And then I um, um, basically self-flopped the, the characters walking to track where their footfalls were and then drew uh, the decks on that thing so that they would match the perspective. And then we painted that. So those solar sailor things where they're where they're on the deck are com- are composites. They're they're partially hand painted and they're partially digital. And the reason we had to do that was because you really couldn't make uh, irregular forms in a digital world at that time without a lot of work. You could do perfect forms, but and so I think that if they had been able to do the uh, the train turning into the carnival and something wicked this way comes. I think they would have run into a similar problem in that we would have seen these sort of perfect geometric forms happening, uh, and then uh, it's and then to try and and, and somehow cross dissolve to the uh, miniature would have probably not worked. It wouldn't have had the detail. It certainly would not have had the lighting detail because uh, lighting packages were still very basic in those days. Um, it would not have had the irregularities that any miniature is bound to have. Or any set for that matter. So I, I think that there were other reasons as well that this, this idea sort of just just died because it was not like I said. The, I don't think the, the technology was there yet. What what uh, was what was the point at which the digital technology kind of became more accessible? Did, did you start doing matte paintings in a, in the digital realm at some point? I started doing my well. well the first time that I actually started working um, digitally on on mats was actually for Super Mario Brothers. And um, I had, I, you know, I started to learn Photoshop. I take that back. Actually, I, even before that, I did a, I did a thing for, um, for John Dykstra. And John called me up and he asked me to do an industrial commercial, if you will. It was, it was a commercial on the behalf of the, uh, uh, the, the healthcare insurance industry that was supposed to go out to Congress and convince them not to um, uh, create legislation uh, regarding health care insurance. And I, I know I'll fry in, in eternal hell for having done that. But, <laughs> um, but John called me and said, we, we need you to do a bunch of matte paintings of, of, of piles of paperwork. Because the idea was that, uh, that gradually over the course of this info, infomercial, Washington, D.C. would be buried in increasing piles of paperwork until the only thing left was the tip of visible was the tip of the um, Washington Monument, if I remember correctly. <laughs> so, um, so uh, what we had done is we had we had photographed a bunch of elements of paper for reference uh, on the stages over at Apogee, and um, and I said, you know, and he was going to get a, a Photoshop artist then to finish it all, and I said, no, I'll do it in Photoshop. Now I had never touched I shouldn't say I had never touched Photoshop, I had touched it, but I'd never painted in it. But I was damned if I wasn't going to take advantage of this opportunity. <laughs> so I convinced him I could do it. So, so uh, Apogee bought their first Mac, and it was a Quadra 900, and shipped it to my my uh, my home. And I spent the weekend cranking on it. And then the that the following um, uh, week or so, 
I cranked out about 20 paintings in about the same amount of time it would have taken me to do five traditionally. And they're paintings loosely in that there was a lot of, of, of cut and paste of elements and then enough painting to just join it and add it and then add the distance stuff and create the atmospherics and that sort of thing. So, you know, it wasn't matte painting, but it was a matte painting that used a lot of photographic elements in it, which, interestingly enough, is a whole other tradition that goes all the way back to God knows when in matte painting. Um, we've many times added photographic elements into paintings, still elements and things like that. Um, but, uh, you know, it's whatever works. You use whatever tool works. And um, so that was the first time that I actually delivered uh, digital matte painting. And then uh, Mario Brothers came along, and uh, I started uh, working on that, and I, and I managed to get Bob Schifo to, um, to work on it, too, and, uh, which was great. So we, we got into that, and, um, and we started originally painting traditionally, and then I, I jumped into uh, Photoshop and finished everything digitally. And so I would, I would uh, do the original painting traditionally because you, getting a, sort of brush strokes and that kind of texture was not really possible in Photoshop in those days. You, you had a ball and you had a square. You could have a soft ball and you could have a square <laughs> with a shadow. And that was it. But if you're trying to do anything sort of dirty and complex, that was difficult. So, um, so I would paint the paintings traditionally, then scan them, and then... Uh, use cloning brushes and other things to, to put in textures and paint those into uh, the paintings to kind of enrich some of the detail and then uh, use the balls, if you will, to, to finish them up. And, and whatever little other little filters or other tricks there were uh, to give it some tooth. And, and, I, and initially I hated it because I said, there's, this, there's no tooth to this stuff, there's no dirt in it, it's a pain in the ass, you have to create a brush stroke rather than just stroke. So I initially hated it, but what I loved about it was that you could um, avoid all the uh, difficulty with balancing uh, film colors in the lab because all you had to do was paint your painting to match the uh, the scan, and it all fell together, and it was a perfect comp. And oh boy, that was great. So there there were you know some things that were great about it, and some things that were not so good. But that was when I I, I got into doing it uh, digitally, and that was pretty much how it went from then on. And uh, I barely touched paint after that just a few times for a couple of companies who just didn't want to, I don't want to do digital, you know, spawn of the devil. And so fine, <laughs> paint a painting for you. But for me, it was, it was both good and bad because I, I, my home studio was equipped like, a, like an art supply because you had to be able to jump on jobs constantly. And I was a freelancer in those days. I didn't work any one place. I worked for five different studios simultaneously. And, uh, and so I had a huge amount of money invested in paints and brushes and all that stuff. And, and by God, all of a sudden, nobody wanted it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it was, you know, definitely it was, you know, you know the early nineties that it really changed. And, uh, you know, I think this, the start, the start was probably in the very late eighties, but I think it was the early nineties that you saw this, the visual effects industry start to roll over into, um, digital effects. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, now you only have to spend several thousand dollars every five years for a new computer <laughs> instead yeah. of incrementally for paint and brushes and everything. Yeah. yeah, you know, my first computer was a Quadra 950. 
and um, I had one of those. <laughs> yeah, and it came with a with a roaring eight megabytes of RAM, and um, <laughs> and uh, and you could increase that, but but. 16, every 16 megabyte chip, which of course Adobe, uh, not Adobe, a- Apple wouldn't guarantee would work. Um, that's a lot of RAM. We're not even sure that our machine will take that. Yeah, okay, great. Um, th- those ran $800 a chip. So, and then you wanted to add a monitor, that was 3,500, and you wanted to add uh, a Wacom tablet, you know, the size of a, sm- a small town and heavy, and that was $3,500. And so. By the time I was done with my setup, I probably had eighteen or nineteen thousand dollars invested in that primitive setup. You know, now you could get five times that for uh, a third the money. I'm curious. Did you, um, when the uh, Wacom Cintiqs came out, where you could actually draw right on the screen, did you take advantage of that, or you doing a separate I, 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 I've used them. Uh, I don't use them uh, at home because I uh, the, the issue I have with Cintiq is dubious about its color calibration accuracy. And if I'm working on something that is has to be really color accurate, uh, I'll, I, I stick with my, with my SpectraView 2 NEC. And because uh, as long as I'm calibrating it, it gives me a very, very good uh, result. Um, but there is a new Cintiq that's coming out. It's a big one. I think it's a 27-inch or 28-inch Cintiq that they're claiming has increased specs, and I've been asked by uh, uh, the head of IT at Warner's uh, Animation to test drive it. So um, supposedly that's going to arrive in a couple of weeks, and they're going to set it up for me to um, work with, and uh, they want to hear my, my thoughts on, on it versus what they're currently using for their, their color monitors, for their, their calibrated monitors. They, they want my eyeballs on it, and which is very nice. Uh, thank you very much. I'm happy to put my eyeballs on it and the rest of you as well. Um, but uh, that's because I also spec'd out uh, when they saw the feature division, uh, the NECs for them when all of their um, barcos, they, they had originally equipped with barcos, which are fabulous monitors, but they were getting old and they were getting a little fuzzy and the thought of paying $5,000 a monitor for like 300 monitors wasn't appealing. I don't know why. <laughs> but um, and they wanted there was anything else they could do, and so um, I did uh, some tests between the Barcos and, and the uh, the NECs, and the NECs um, were awfully damn close at uh, one quarter of the price. So we made the, the leap from from Barcos to NECs based on my recommendation, and I guess they want me to to, to all these years later to uh, look at this new. Um, Cintiq and, and decide whether or not I think it, it can replace the, uh, the the monitors they're currently using. So we'll see. But I, I've used them. I, I, I like them. Um, if you've got a uh, a good um, um, desk set up where you can have a comfortable working angle, because one of the issues I had with, with the Cintiqs was that they just were sitting too high on the desk and uh, for me to work with them comfortably and towards the end of the day I started feeling um, you know like my wrist was starting to ache and certain things were starting to go and I started to feel tingling and numbness and I'm going I don't think I want to do this um, now now Cintiq I think recognized the issue themselves uh, because they produced a, a, a weighted um, base for the for this so you could actually swing the, 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 the monitor down and put it in a lower more comfortable angle 
if you're if you're basically stuck uh, sitting at a piece of furniture that was never designed with the idea that it would have something like this on top of it. And um, uh, those look like they ought to work really well. But I'll, we'll see what, what I get handed at Warner's when that happens. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I may be ancient, but apparently I'm still... Uh, <laughs> I'm still a contender. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to hear. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, jumping back just a tiny bit, did you, uh, you worked for uh, Robert Abel and Associates for a little bit? Oh, yeah, yeah. Right after, right after Tron, you know, a lot of the people who worked on Tron came out of Abel's. And um, so naturally, my contacts with all of those people after Tron was done, uh, I started working... Um, at Bob Abel's, and I was doing some of that stuff while I was also, uh, and after what I, after I, I did something like it this way come, but yeah, I, I was I was Abel's mat painter for a couple of years, and right up to when the whole thing kind of exploded and collapsed after you know, Omnibus bought them. I, I read a quote from you in the in, there's a book called Moving Innovation: A History of Computer Animation. And there's a quote from you in there that says on, on your first job at Robert Abel and Company, uh, and Associates, sorry, uh, I, your quote is, I think I slept only six to seven hours in a week. It was the only studio I ever saw that had telephones in every toilet stall so you could always be reached. Yep. Is that really you, true? That was absolutely <laughs> true. Wow. Yep. That place was high pressure. There were, to- there were, there were phones in the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Now I don't know about the 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 the, the women's, okay, because I wasn't sure. in those, but but you were definitely in the men's. Uh, there were there were phones in the toilet. Yeah, you were you were doing your business. You could be conducting their business at the same time. <laughs> wow. It was it was a very um, high high intensity environment, and they worked very hard. They worked a lot of hours. Um, for all the, the the stuff I went through uh, working for them as a an outside contractor all the whole time I was there, um, um, I'm actually very grateful to them because they taught. I learned a lot from them. You know, it's, it's one of the great things about it was that you learned how to work really fast and think on your feet and think think in terms of what would get the uh, a working image quickly and uh and uh, what what was essential to sell the the idea and what was not uh i learned to you know you know mostly despise people from advertising agencies because they seemed like they they were there strictly to kind of milk the uh their expense accounts but right. um but they were doing a lot of commercial work at that point right yes they were they were they 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 were uh, a real uh, top quality production house and they had extraordinary people there like uh like john hughes i mean um you know and i used to see him in the hallway and he would bow and he would say good morning mr silver and i would bow back and say good morning mr hughes (laughs) um and then he went off to great rhythm and hughes which is a powerhouse and 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 yeah and bob definitely helped him get that off the ground so a lot of things uh that bob did for people um i think helped push the whole digital and uh, industry along at a very early, early point. But it was a tough, tough place. You worked hard and you worked um, um, some incredibly long hours. And, and uh, I, um, yeah, I, I, it was a, I think it was a Levi's commercial. And it, if, if I remember correctly, it was a Levi's jeans commercial. And I did a bunch of paintings for it. And yeah, it was about six weeks of, of six hours of sleep <laughs> in that first week. And I was, I was, 
but you know, I was on a high. I mean, I was, I was, I was working with some incredible people and, uh, and I was learning and, you know, and I was, I, thankfully I, I was, you know, in my very early thirties. So I had energy to burn and, uh, working those crazy hours was kind of like typical for me. I would, I worked all kinds of crazy hours, just what you did. Definitely a high intensity place. And of course there was that whole business with air, um, the fellow that uh, committed suicide and, you know, so, you know, it, it did have some repercussions down the road. Hmm. You're, you're also quoted in, in that book as saying that the, this is, uh, this is Tom Cito's book, right? Yeah. 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 That's right. This will teach, this will teach me uh, to trust Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, this is off the record. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, what else? What else did I did I say that's going to keep me unemployed in Hollywood? Go no, ahead. I'm just, I'm just curious. Um, when when Omnibus Able kind of uh, did uh, go south, yeah. is it, yeah. the, I'm curious what your your views were on the you were you were quoted as saying that the next few years this the CG VFX business was dead in town. It made inventors sheepish about putting their money in these types of technologies. Um, he, I think he might have expanded my quote. Um, but I think that the, the essence of that was, I think it did have that effect. Um, you had digital productions, you had Abel's, by the way, uh, in when, when, when Omnibus bottom, uh, we referred to the result as DOA. Because <laughs> a digital omnibus and Abel, right? Yes. But, right. <laughs> but, but also, also DOA. <laughs> And I think that there was there was a lot of feeling around there that uh, that this thing was was you know fraught with peril because this is a very tough industry and it was a very expensive industry and um, and uh, I think that that it, you know these guys were 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 dancing on the, on the edge of knives trying to keep their their companies from you know closing their doors based on the 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 um, the, the point at which the technology was and the development that was going on and the costs that were going on, because, you know, uh, crays aren't cheap and vaxes aren't cheap and they didn't have, uh, in those early days, they didn't have you know, the, the, the kind of threading multiprocessor, blah, blah, blah stuff that we have today didn't exist, you know? So you needed brute force power to get the stuff through and it came very, very, it was very expensive to do. Um, but I, I think that, that the, uh, the, well, my, okay. So here's my, here's my view on, 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 on some of this omnibus. I gathered from some of the quotes I'd heard the original people were, were kind of like venture capitalist and investor types. And they got into this stuff and then they turned around and looked at who was, who was, um, noteworthy out there. And they, and they bought, uh, uh, digital productions, which from what I've been told had, had, uh, a lot of debts, but not a lot of capitalization. Uh, I think they thought that they were going to buy companies that had assets, and what they found was they bought companies that had assets in terms of talent, but not other kinds of assets. And at the time, I was still working primarily with, I'd done a couple of things for digital, but at the time I was working primarily with, um, with you know, Abel's, with Bob's uh, house. And Omnibus came in, and, and all of a sudden, uh, instead of getting paid, I was getting this this for my, my work, I was getting this, this line saying that payments are temporarily being, being held while we go through, uh, some form of, um, 
there was some kind of an accounting thing, and they had to go through the, some kind of forensics and blah, 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 and, and, and then you would get paid. Uh, I was told by uh, a kindly source there that if I wanted to get paid uh, for anything I was doing, that I needed to demand payment when I brought the painting in and be prepared to take the painting away with me and not leave it if they said, well, we'll, we'll get you a check. So um, that's what I ended up doing while waiting to get paid on this other work that I delivered that was sitting in limbo. And I, and I told, whether it was Mark or whether it was uh, Bert, um, uh, you know, I'll come in, but I, I'll walk out with the painting if the check isn't there. And, um, you know, there was the usual, you don't want to be a bad guy, and then there was the usual, and I'm not a charity case. So, um, so that's how it worked. And then um, what happened was that Omnibus decided that they wanted to expand into doing um, uh, a complete range of effects, including uh, miniatures and, and, and other kinds of work, and not just digital work. They, they thought that if they could offer a wider range of services, that we would that they would be be better off. So they um, so digital took on a job that uh, was going to be primarily a matte painting job, and um, and it was for this mini series called America, spelled with a K. And it was supposed to be about a Soviet takeover of the United States. And the deal was we were going to recreate this takeover of Washington D.C. Um, and I was going to be uh, doing a bunch of paintings of the um, the Capitol building and the um, Congress, you know, the uh, House of Representatives and the Senate. And I was doing set extensions and uh, paintings of the rotunda of the Capitol, you know, destroyed and all this other stuff. And uh, I flew out to Canada, uh, to Toronto, to shoot uh, to shoot the, the the sets, to shoot the plates for this this stuff. And then um, my agreement was that they were supposed to give me oh. 50% on, on the beginning, uh, another 25% along the way, and uh, 25% on delivery. And almost immediately, they started jerking me around. So I walked off. And now the producer on that was none other than Lee Dyer, who I had worked with on Something Wicked This Way Comes. And so Lee was on it, and Ellen Summers, who had, um, had, who had been at Digital Productions and, uh, you know, has gone very far in the industry. And Ellen uh, was on that. And Basically, both of them went to bat for me. They basically said that that um, you said you'd give them the money. We need them to do this. This is ridiculous. And they even went as far as as to animate that they would too would also walk off if they didn't. So um, uh, yeah, kind of courageous actually. And so uh, what happened was that uh, I got my startup money. Um, we went back to work. I I got my my mid-payment, and then they started to jerk me around the end payment, and again, uh, Lee and Ellen came to my defense, and, uh, and, I, and I got my money out. So, plus, I said the other part of this deal was I wouldn't finish the paintings unless I got also everything that was owed to me from the work I did for Abel's prior to Omnibus taking it over, everything that they'd been sitting on for eight months at that point. So I got paid out entirely. So the, the, the end result was that when Abel's collapsed, when DOA went DOA, they didn't know me a nickel. <laughs> wow. I'm one of the few guys that got out of that thing without getting screwed. And some of those people uh, were into it up as much as six figures. Wow. When it went away. Some of their, some of their directors were in the hole. 
huge amount. Wow. I mean, I, yeah. I, I worked freelance for almost 20 years and that just something, something like that scares me. <laughs> oh my God. Scary. It was, it was a mess. And I remember Chris Cassidy asking me if I wanted to be part of the class action suit on that. And I, and I said, Chris, they don't owe me any money. And he was like, huh, what, how, how did you do that? <laughs> 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 so I, I wasn't part of that suit and I doubt, I don't even know if I, hopefully they got some money, but I don't know how they would have got it out of these guys. I think they retreated back to, Toronto and, you know, went into, you know, making, making, you know, toilet paper with designer labels on it or something. <laughs> no idea. But the end result was that that did create a, a huge void that I think did delay digital effects production for a while. You know, whether it was a few years or a year or whatever it was, who knows. But the one thing I think that did come out of it was that some of the people who had worked for AIR went off to found their own companies. Uh, Santa Barbara Studios was one of them. Uh, and I think that some of the development people and software development people got involved with Wavefront and with Alias. And I think that, that, uh, that, that what you can say for sure about Ables was that it was one of those companies that had a seminal influence on the digital effects business. It was, you know, 1986. So yeah, there wasn't a lot going on and it just blew up. Well, a little later you moved into, uh, being, uh, art, Art department supervisor on several films at Warner. Yeah, well, right, with Mars Attacks, is that? Yeah, what happened was, um, give you how this this happened. I got involved as, as one of the people who started a, um, a a unit at Warner Brothers called Rabbit Warner Brothers Imaging Technology, which later became Warner Digital Studios. And um, and as such, I was uh, their senior creative and head of their art department, and kind of headed a lot of two D there. And that came about because of a gentleman by the name of John Sheely. John, uh, who had seen me working on Mario Brothers, asked me to help him start a little group because Mario Brothers was a four wall. We just set up a facility and 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 basically created the facility for the film. So so John asked me to do kind of the same thing for him uh, on um, on Coneheads. John had been hired to supervise. Um, visual effects on the film. Uh, he didn't know uh, too many people on the digital end of things. He knew a lot of people because he had a, a long career in, in traditional effects. Um, and so I pulled in people from um, Mario Brothers because they were basically the only ones I knew, and then we pulled in a few more. Uh, and we, we formed a, um, a small digital group uh, on the Paramount lot um, doing work on, on, um, on Coneheads, and I did matte paintings uh, for that, and Bob Schiefo did some matte paintings for that, and I art directed um, on some of the uh, uh, the effects work, as well as doing, you know, like working with um, Stetson. So Stetson was doing our miniatures, and I and I was technically quote their the art director from from Paramount over there looked at the Stetson miniatures, which basically consisted of me looking and going, "Wow, these are great, Mark." <laughs> like they needed my help, really, <laughs> like bullshit. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then, uh, we were, we were shooting, um, some live action, uh, I should say real time motion control stuff. And so I was on, on the set for, uh, for John to supervise the shooting of the real time motion control stuff at video image and, um, and that sort of thing. So, you know, and so, and so that was what I did. I supervised plates, plates, I shot matte paintings. I, uh, did a bunch of color sketches for what Remulac would look like, you know. 
bunch of different kinds of things. And so I provided art direction on, on the visual effects end of it. From that, then John went over to Warner Brothers. And Warner's at that point was just beginning to dabble with some digitals on the animation side. And he saw an opportunity to create at Warner Brothers what we had um, created at Paramount. So initially, I did work for my Paramount office uh, for Warner's, and then uh, they offered me space, even though I was working for everybody else in town at the time. <laughs> um, I was doing stuff for Santa Barbara Studios, and I was doing stuff for Paramount, and I was doing stuff for other companies. And But they were afraid if they didn't give me an office over there at, at, at Warner Animation that I would wander off somewhere else, and they wanted me. So I said, okay. You know. So they gave me a, uh, an office, and, and they gave me... A, uh, a, a parking space, and they said, you know, but as soon as you're done with this stuff, you have to do our stuff. So I said, fine. So <laughs> for three months, I did other stuff, and then I went to work for Warner's. And we we did work on Free Willy, one of the Free Willies, and we did some work on um, on A Little Princess, which I loved working on, and that was where I got to meet uh, uh, Alfonso Cuadron, who I just think is brilliant. Um, and just, he was absolutely delightful guy to work with. Just so brilliant. So brilliant. And to see what he's done in, in the two years, gravity is an amazing piece of work. But uh, at that time, he was just sort of getting his feet wet with this whole idea of effects. And as, as we were, as were we, and that was, so Little Princess was our, actually our first little real project that we did. And we were, we had eight people. And um, I was basically the, uh, the senior art director and Matt Painter and and co-visual co effects supervisor, because John was working mostly on, on a Batman Batman film at the time. And so I, I pretty much worked on uh, on A Little Princess. And then I guess the idea was originally that we would have a small group, just like we did at Paramount, that would be sort of a an in-studio small group to handle um, certain, certain shots that really needed to be done in a close handhold with the director, and and then to uh, send out the other shots to other facilities, bigger facilities to do the work. Um, somewhere along the line, somebody decided that it would be even better to create a full-on effects uh, facility. And so um, at the time I was doing Marvin the Martian in the Third Dimension, which was a stereoscopic, all-digital stereoscopic, Classically animated short, and the first one, as far as I know, that was done this way. Every, everybody does stereo now, but they didn't then, and we did. And, um, and we were building our own stereo cameras, and we were working out stereoscopy problems, and we were working with some, uh, several experts on how to, how to best do it. And, and I was basically the guy in charge of, of, of all of the background work on that and creating the environments for that and supervising that. And then I became the guy who was in charge of all the film out color and supervising how it, how it got filmed out and the color fidelity and blah, blah, and all that. Because that was my optical training coming in because people said, you know, nobody else really knows how to, because um, has a lot of experience with how do you get the best image on a piece of film, but you do. So all of a sudden I'm sitting there saying, okay, use these lights for doing a full negative. And people will say, what's a full negative? And I go, well, follow. And I explain what a full negative is. Anyway, so... You know, stop me when I'm driving you nuts here. But that's, no, no. This, this is so. So in the middle of doing this, we uh, they, the studio created Warner Digital, and they brought Mike Fink in as the as the um, 
senior uh, effects supervisor, and I had worked with Mike on a couple of projects, and, and I just, and again, Mike's another guy who's just a genius. Ellen Summers was the VP, uh, and we had, um, and she was like head of production, and, and again, Ellen had worked with her on um, on this America project, so I loved Ellen, and I knew her from digital production. And, uh, and we had Tim Sarnoff, who had been kind of the executive vice president at Warner Animation, who, who had basically been pushing to have a, a digital um, facility at Warner Brothers. His, his whole vision was that Warners needed to jump into this thing because this, this would provide tremendous assets for the studio, would provide uh, uh, a real opportunity to expand what Warners could offer. And if you did it in-house, you could do it for less money and have better, a better result. And so he was pushing for that. And so he was really the guy in charge. And, um, and Tim and I had a great relationship. I, I really liked him. Another, another guy who really kept his word to me and anything that, that he, he promised me and, and always delivered. And I, I, I've got to say that about Tim. He's a great guy. But all of a sudden, we went from you know, a small group of 25, 30 people in uh, uh, a small facility in the, in the Imperial Bank Tower at, uh, in, in Sherman Oaks and part of the Galleria there uh, to our own facility, uh, what had, I believe had been a, a Lockheed building uh, and it you know, and had, uh, was uh, already set up with a raised floor and we could run all our cabling and we created what I think was one of the best designed visual effects facilities if not the best designed visual effects facility in town at that time. Hmm. And wait, what do you mean when you say best designed? Because we, they really thought out about what they wanted from the standpoint of, of the kinds of machines, the, kind of, the kinds of, of uh, networking, everything. It was huge firepower. Plus, we, we, we had uh, uh, flames and we had infernos. I mean, we, we had real compositing power there. We also had brought in uh, some extremely gifted um, programmers who could create effects tools, and we were doing advanced effects tools for camera tracking. And you know, we had amazing people there who, when the company was closed by Warner's, uh, they went up and they 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 went to ILM, they went to uh, ImageWorks. I mean, these guys were snapped up in a heartbeat because we, we had, it was like the, the 1927 Yankees. We had a bunch <laughs> of heavy hitters in there. And, and, and these guys were delivering great tools and all this stuff, unfortunately, was lost at the time that, that they closed us down. So what happened is we, we created this facility and I was the senior art director of, uh, for that facility and I was the guy that basically, whether I got that deeply involved in a particular project or not, I was supposed to be eyes on. So I was eyes on everything, even if not always hands on everything. Um, and we did that for a few years and then they decided that it was not in their interest to continue to do this and they closed us. But uh, it's a shame because uh, I think that um, uh, long run, I think they would have, they would have benefited highly from that facility. Um, but you know what? Everybody moved on, and all they all did quite well. You know. Very cool. I, I know you guys put out some really great work during that period. So, well, you know, there was Mars attacks, and we did not do the flaming cows. And I want that clear: we did not do the flaming cows. Um, we did a lot of work on Mars attacks. Uh, we did 
work on on Batman on, on Batman. We did Digital Gotham City. Uh, we did um, uh, uh, and I did some map paintings in Gotham. Uh, we did, um, and of course, I love the Little Princess. As modest a picture as it is, and you know, I, it just you know it was a fun film to work on. Uh, Contact, and we did commercials. We did all, we did uh, Vegas Vacation. We did a lot of different things, and um, uh, we were busy. That place was always busy. It was never not busy. Yeah, and Contact especially is just that's one of my favorite films. That's... Contact is one of those films that was an interesting one. I'll, I'll tell you a little story about Contact. Sure. I, I, I had a little bit of involvement on it, and uh, on, on that film, they, they, were, they had a problem with, with one day's shooting. They had, um, apparently, um, camera assistant had not been careful about checking the gate on this camera, and they'd done a lot of shooting, and in the course of the day, a bunch of emulsion material was getting scraped out of the sockets, I guess, and was building top and bottom in the, uh, inside the image area. So when they, when they looked at the film, uh, some, of the, some of the days shoot, there were these, this little pyramid of crud intruding into the image area on the top and the bottom. And they, were, they were, wanted to know if there was anything we could do to restore the missing image area. And so it was one of these things that I got handed, said, can you figure this out? And so, um, and I couldn't do this with Photoshop. I had to use a different package. I'm blanking on the name of it now. Um, it'll come to be probably five minutes after we hang up. <laughs> but um, but, uh, it, but the, the thing about it was you could work in, in sitting on format on it, because at those days we were, we were having everything um, um, stand in Cineon and, and working in Cineon format. So I, I was basically doing a bunch of cuts and pastes and clones and all this sort of stuff to see if I could cut from one frame and, and you know match it into another frame during a move and then paint what was missing you know, to make it. And, 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 and this wasn't anything too easy because it consisted, for example, of some scenes of a guy sitting in the back seat of a, of a car during a chase and he's kind of being thrown around and his head is disappearing, top of his head is disappearing behind the, the upper pile of film crap and his tie is flailing around through the lower pile of film crap and I'm trying to figure out how to make this film crap disappear and, and make, make it seem quite seamless wherever, you know, for, for each of these sequences. And, um, and so I did this stuff and, you know, frame at a time and, and I spent several days on it and then uh, handed it off to be recorded out and I said, if anybody laughs at this, I'm going to kill them. <laughs> and because um, I figured... You know, this got to be bad. Even if each frame looked good, I hadn't seen them in sequence yet. So let's see what this looks like. Well, we put it on the screen, and God damn it, it worked. Except for one slight pop in one frame, everything wow. is absolutely seamless. Nice. So, well, yeah. Except now, some poor slob had to do that. They had to go back and clean all those frames. So, because uh, I did it for one shot, and there was a day's worth of shooting this for this stuff. <laughs> so, so uh, uh, we assigned one of my 2D guys to it, and he spent the next like four weeks cleaning this stuff up. Oh. And uh, that was deemed cheaper than going back to reshoot. You know, one, one artist, four weeks, cheaper than, than going back and reshooting because, you know, you have to put a whole crew out there, lights, and blah. So, um, so yeah, so that's my one thing with, with contact. I did a bad thing. I made, I made people aware that they could be really sloppy when they're <laughs> shooting and we could fix it for them. <laughs> fix it in post. Fix it in post. It's like fix it again, Tony. Yeah. yeah. Oh wow. 
So what what are you doing now? Uh, I got out of the visual effects industry about a um, decade ago. I had done uh, art direction on the core, and that was a rousing failure. And uh, I, I actually really like that film, too. There's just something about it that's endearing. I should look at it again, then, because you probably saw something I missed. Um, <laughs> I, I, I worked really hard on that film. I love working with, with Greg. He's just great. A guy, and, and of course, it came out and bombed. It was very expensive. Um, and I think some heads rolled. You know, it's, it's like I've worked on all these films where they're bombs and heads roll. It's like sooner or later, it's got to catch up with me. Like basketball. I mean, <laughs> basketball for God's sake. But I've had a lot of interesting times working on, on the core. And then uh, it kind of bombed. And then my career kind of stalled for a bit. And I was, uh, I did Dixie Chicks um, landslide video, and I did some other stuff. But I, I was kind of just done with visual effects, and I was looking also at what was happening in the field. I was seeing how these companies were getting squeezed to death, mm. and I just thought, this is all going to collapse. This is all going to collapse. It's going to go away, um, and um, and I, I'm kind of tired of working 18-hour days on films that I'm not really enjoying. So, yeah. uh, so I got a, a chance to move into uh, animation, and that's where I went. And uh, initially, it was a pretty low-paying spot, but at least it was a, a, an opportunity, and I thought I'd take it. And uh, I, I was just uh, sort of um, production managing uh, the 3D animation on Duck Dodgers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> nice. And it was actually, I actually enjoyed it. And uh, I liked that, and I liked the people I was dealing with. Um, and so I, I stayed in animation, and that's where I've been for the last, whatever, 12 years now. Oh, nice. Yeah. So basically I've been doing that and worked at, did a couple of features and, uh, did a, did a gig as a supervising map painter on, um, on Astro Boy, which was a lot of fun. And that was, that was, uh, that was, uh, another one of those little companies that could, and we, we got that film out against all odds, you know, but unfortunately it, it just didn't get promoted. And didn't. It's just a shame because it's, it's actually a very sweet film. I think it's a good film. But I, I supervised the math department here and also uh, one in Hong Kong. And, uh, you know, I did I worked on did Osmosis Jones and Eight Crazy Nights and, and did a lot of uh, television. And so currently I'm, I'm background painting on, on, uh, on a Scooby-Doo series that's coming out uh, this fall called Be Cool Scooby-Doo. Yeah, so I'm enjoying it. I love working uh, on a Scooby-Doo. So it isn't visual effects, but it's, it's painting. And... Uh, and it's, you know, it's fun. That's very cool. Very cool. Yeah. And, and when you look around at what's happened in the visual effects industry, I mean, it's very sad. Uh, the same year that Rhythm and Hughes won the Academy Award, they also went under, you know. And you look around and, and, and Digital Domain, dead. You know, all these companies, I mean, there are some, there are some companies out there that are, are still going, but I, you know, a lot of the, the, the stuff is just gone and, and they're working for, um, um, they're, they're producing a lot of work for not a lot of money. And I just look at that and I go, you know, if you want to do that, that's fine. But, uh, it seems like an, an awful, awfully hard road to, to, to take. And, and, you know, I loved it at its best when, when I could go out and be on the set and figure out the shot as well as paint the shot. And that was my favorite time doing that. And I got to do that at Warner Digital, of course, as well. I mean, I was on the set 
figuring out the shots. You know, when I did Rosewood, that was great because it was you know just a simple little shot. But I was on location figuring out how to make that shot work and and behind the camera, operating camera, and all of that stuff. And that that made it more satisfying. Yeah. Well, uh, where can people go to find out more about your your current work or your personal work? Oh, well, I do have an online site that's ancient. I, I keep promising <laughs> I'm going to upgrade it, but now it's about nine years old. So if you want to go and see what I was doing about up till nine years ago, you can go to um, silverimageservice.com. And uh, I, I built this site basically as a uh, place to show my portfolio and show stuff I've worked on. So there's there's a there's a smattering of things, including my own um, some of the photorealist paintings I was doing when this whole thing sort of started, mm-hmm. and some stuff I'm playing around with digital photography and um, and some of the work I've done over the years, both in terms of doing map paintings, background paintings, design, uh, some concept work, and you know generally um, the, the the fun stuff where you're where somebody comes up and says, do you think this could work? Can you tell us what this might look like? And you you sort of Pack away at it, thrash away at it, come back and said, it look like this. And they go, yes. And you feel good. Or they go, what? Oh my God. And you feel bad. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, that's the site and it's ancient, but, uh, uh, I keep promising myself that, that I'll, uh, put a new site up, but I'm just too damn busy doing stuff. So, um, that's it for now, you know, until, uh, I have an, a, you know, a, a course correction and people go, anybody but you <laughs> and then i'll get around to doing a new site again yeah well so that's always the best place to be is when you're you're too busy to update your resume or your website <laughs> well i try to get the resume updated although it's eight, it's nine years old on that site but um but if anybody out there is interested i'd be happy to you know to, to send them some samples of some of the more recent stuff but um you know, right now I'm. I just finished doing a Tom and Jerry uh, feature-length uh, film that I was supervising backgrounds on, and uh, jumped into the Scooby-Doo, and we'll see what what the future holds. But I'm 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 happy to be uh, working on projects that are interesting and are fun, and with people who are interesting and fun. And um, you know, I can't complain. And I'm I'm not exactly a spring chicken anymore. So I'm I'm also <laughs> happy just that that the fact that I'm you know kind of balding and gray and all that sort of stuff. And, um, and that, you know, Richard Nixon isn't just a historical figure that I read about in, in history books, um, isn't held against me, you know? Yeah. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, Jesse, for coming on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. And I, I hope that, uh, that whoever listens to this enjoys it. And, um, I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> I did. I did. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. You can find our website and the show notes for this episode at opticalpodcast.com. We're also available on Twitter, Facebook, and SoundCloud at username opticalpodcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. It's free and easy to do. Just search for Optical Podcast on iTunes or follow the link from our website. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us reach new listeners. Big thanks to Cinefx for helping sponsor us. And remember, you can go to Cinefx.com to order issue 141, covering The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies, Jupiter Ascending, Chappie, and Unbroken. You can also get the new issues in the Cinefx iPad app, along with every back issue of the magazine, including issue 12, where you can read even more details about Something Wicked This Way Comes. Just follow the link from our website. 
Thanks again to Jesse Silver for chatting with us. Thanks to our dialogue editor, Joseph Ravenson. Thanks to Digital Drew for all of the music in this episode. And you can find more of his music at digitaldrew.com. That's digitaldroo.com. And thanks to Mike Gower for designing our Aperture logo. I'm your host, Mark Bosco. See you next time. any indication, it looks like the future will be made of equal parts computer technology and old-fashioned hands.